Before we continue in our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again um, that you have gathered us here by your sovereign mercy. And we come to confess that we are a needy people. That in and of ourselves, we have no capacity to know you, to worship you. Uh, we have no capacity to stand before you and rightly cry out. So we thank you that we have by your grace, by your kindness towards us, by the hope of the gospel that's extended in Christ, we have the joy of standing before you, cleansed in Christ, and being able to cry out in praise and thanksgiving and in hope, knowing that our sin debt has been paid in full as your people. But as we stand this side of glory, we know full well that our struggle with sin is real. And our sin is offensive in your sight. Although it is paid in full, we still wrestle with it. We still struggle. We still fight. But it is just that. It is a fight. We have a real hatred of sin for the Spirit of God indwells your people. That is a beautiful gift, an, an absolute uh, treasure that belongs to us in salvation. And so we come as a people of confession, knowing that moment by moment our sin is offensive and heinous to you and that we hate it and we strive to know you more fully and we strive to walk in righteousness and we long to walk in purity. We long to examine ourselves rightly before you that we might confess, that we might walk in a clean state, that we might strive to be at intimacy with you as we struggle and fight hard against sin together that our lives would honor you. So we come to confess knowing that you are a God of hope, that you are a God of kindness to your people, and that you're continually washing us in your word and cleansing us and giving us greater capacity to go forth and glorify your name in obedience. And we thank you and we praise you and we long for the continued intimacy of knowing you and hating sin and striving for righteousness together as your people. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we return to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verse 21. This, the, um, this morning's message is called The Call to Repentance. Now, when we get to verse 21, we come to language that speaks at the, at the very heart of what Paul, we've seen Paul and his cohorts doing and all of their missionary endeavors. Now we're on their third leg here, and as we're tracking a timeline, we're on the third leg of Paul's missionary journeys. And so we're going to hold here and kind of take a didactic look at this one particular verse and just deal with the language there a bit, uh, particularly the notion of repentance. So it's going to look a little different this morning 
But we need to settle down. It's that important. We need to settle down here and take more of a uh, sort of technical didactic look at what's going on in this language that we find in verse 21. So look there with me and we'll back up to verse 20 just by way of kind of tying this together and pick up what Paul says here in verse 21. So he's talking uh, to the Ephesian elders, if you remember in context that they've joined him and uh, his cohorts there at Miletus, just off the coast. So um, he's encouraging them. He's reminding them of his ministry. Again, it's not an act of arrogance. It's just a matter of fact with Paul. This is what Paul has done among them. And glory is given to God. But it's very straightforward and it's very poignant and it's very encouraging and um, clarifying for the elders. So he says, the beginning in verse 20, he says, by way of, of reminder, by way of encouragement, this is what I have done amongst you. Remember how I have, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. And here we go. This is the core of Paul's ministry endeavor. It should be the core of all Christians' ministry endeavor. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. And by the way, that's just a first century New Testament language for everybody. That's uh, for us. That's all y'all. Everybody. This is a universal truth. Testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've tracked in space and time uh, here for the last few uh, uh, Lord's Days we've had together. We've been tracking Paul's ministry, and it is a unique and glorious ministry. We've seen Paul travel uh, from uh, across the GNC and, and three different times all over Europe, all over what now we know as modern-day Turkey, carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, in space and time, what we've been looking at it as is a unique ministry. It's the first time. This is Paul's point, man. For the first time in all of God's creation to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. Now, has the gospel come outside the confines of geopolitical Old Testament Israel? Well, yes, it has. But it's only come as those on the perimeter, and it's been a narrow perimeter all throughout time up until this point, a narrow geographical perimeter. The God-fears, the Gentiles, have come to Israel. That's how it's been working. And now Christ has come upon the scene. He's lived out his earthly ministry. He's fulfilled his calling. He's fulfilled his covenant with God the Father as the unique God-man. He's walked, he's trod this earth in sinless perfection. And he's gone to die a substitutionary atoning death on behalf of all who repent and believe on him. They're imputing his earned righteousness under the law into their account. And that's happened in space and time just as God has appointed it to be so. And he's resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, validating all that he said about himself. And now, God in his sovereignty at this time 
has gathered a small bin, a small, a small band of followers of Jesus Christ. He's appointed some of them to be apostles of Christ. And we've talked about their unique calling and their unique blessing upon God and their unique ministry. Point man to the Gentiles is Paul. And we've tracked him as God, according to his sovereign grace at this time in all of history, in all of his story. This is when he has chosen to bring the gospel to the nations initially. And we track this band back and forth, back and forth. And so it is a unique time in history. Now we look at, at, we look back and we see there's there's been other times throughout history where we've seen great works of God in other parts of the world, in various parts of the world. And uh, uh, we see the grace and mercy of God there, and we long for that to continue, and we, we anxiously await his return. But this is the initial carrying of the gospel to the Gentile world. It's unique. When I was studying this, I, I pulled up a little. I was just thinking about uh, the gospel and how God, uh, how, how God moves the gospel around this globe. And I thought back, um, and I looked up uh, on a YouTube video of, of one of Billy Graham's first crusades into Seoul, Korea. I believe it was in 73. And at that time, if I'm not mistaken, that was at least the, the largest recorded audience of any uh, live speaker. They were, they were estimated over a million people gathered in Seoul, Korea. Um, I would say I believe it was 73, 74, somewhere around there. Uh, and Evangelist Convent, people was, uh, they had uh, lots of footage. These people were there at all night prayer visuals. And there was a great movement. Uh, many churches planted in Seoul, Korea at that time. And such has been the case all throughout time. But this is the initial working of God, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And as he does, now we come to the very heart of the message. Well, he's done this marvelous work. He's used these men to carry this message to and fro, to and fro. He's brought them through Peril after peril. And these men have suffered greatly, and God has borne them up through all kinds of struggles. Why? What is the message? We know that the, that the object of the message is the saving reality of Jesus Christ. But what must we do with that message? Now, I know some of your eyebrows are perked up. What do you mean do? We don't do anything. That's works, isn't it? Well, there is the false reality of works, but absolutely, let me say to you today, uh, unequivocally, you do two things in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is applied to your life genuinely, you do two things. You repent and you have faith in Jesus Christ. You repent to God and you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's two things. And you absolutely do them both in your life, in space and time, where God has created you. You do them. So what I want to um, how I want to approach this this morning is to just give you a little background leading up to this language briefly. 
and then address two things concerning the foundation of repentance. We'll talk about um, faith, Lord willing, soon. But today I just want us to deal with this notion of repentance because it is one of two things that you must do to be saved. So the background is this. Repentance and faith are two commands of the gospel. Now there's your difference. Because you're wondering, wait a minute, brother. This sure sounds a lot like works. No, it's commands. You're commanded. All people everywhere are commanded to repent and believe on Christ. So we have an active role in salvation. That's your active role. You, you have to do this. If you are to be saved, you must repent and believe. You must repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. Both are required. Here's what I want you to understand. Again, we'll deal with faith a little later. We're going to concentrate on on repentance this morning, but both are required. I want you to understand that both are required and they're both universally required. We saw the language in here uh, and, and, uh, of, of Jew and Gentile. Everybody, all of humanity, all that will be saved must repent and believe, both Jew and Gentile. So was there a special place, uh, a, a special place of, of salvation for, for the Jews? They had this unique relationship with God. Is there a special place for them that there's no repentance required? That there's no faith in Jesus Christ? No. Is there anywhere in the Gentile world? My goodness. There's a vast array of people included in the Gentile world. All kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, cultural contexts. Is there any place? Is there any room? Is there any space in the Gentile world where salvation is offered and applied? Rightly, where there is no repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. No. This is universal. Both are required and both are universal. So I want you to know that. Everybody is included in this command. Both repentance and faith are connected. This way. They both display the majesty of God in salvation. There's much more that could be said there, but there's nothing less. So I'm just going to try to leave that out there. Both are connected. Both display the majesty of God in salvation. However, repentance and faith are not the same thing. They're unique and distinguishable from one another. So inextricably linked, both go together. Can't have one without the other. But they're not the same thing. That's why we're going to deal with them separately. You got it? One doesn't happen without the other. Salvation doesn't take place unless both transpire. But they're not the same thing. Linked, but distinguishable. Again, they both display God's grace and majesty and salvation. They do so in two directions. So there's a direction for repentance, and there's a direction for faith. They're both linked, and they both display God in two directions, and we'll talk about that. Faith is directed toward Jesus Christ. Do you see that language here? Again, we're going to deal with faith a little more in depth later, but just uh, by way of background here. So he testifies to both Jews and Greeks, repentance towards God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the New American Standard, it says in there, but the preposition 
used in the original language is the same. You can just, toward could be used both, both times. So toward and in, as it comes in English, is the same preposition using the Greek. So if it's easier for us to conceptually understand this, take it this way. Faith towards God, I mean, excuse me, repentance towards God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Okay? So there's a direction. That's why I'm saying this. Faith goes in a direction towards Jesus Christ. Now, so our faith is directed towards Jesus. That is God. This faith is directed towards God who has become man in order that our salvation might be accomplished in him. He is the one mediator between God and man. So our faith is directed towards God, the Redeemer, in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith is displayed in this direction. Towards God, the Redeemer, towards Jesus Christ. Remember our catechism when it speaks about faith? Our catechism says of faith, faith is what? Faith in Jesus Christ is the saving grace by which we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. That's faith. Now, in a connected way, yet distinguishable, repentance is directed towards God in a more general sense. Repentance is directed towards God as creator, lawgiver, judge, possessor of heaven and earth. So where repentance, where uh, where faith is directed towards God in a very specific sense, God in the person of Jesus Christ. Repentance is directed towards God in a very general sense. God is creator, lawgiver, judge, possessor of heaven and earth. The triune God against whom we sin and from whom we must seek forgiveness. That is where repentance is directed. Our catechism speaking of repentance says this. What is repentance? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. You see how they're both a saving grace. Faith and repentance are both a saving grace. Repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an understanding of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose uh, of and striving after new obedience. Now that's a very good definition of repentance. That's a nutshell of everything you see when you see the word repentance in Scripture. Man, they did a, they did a good job here. Again, it's not Scripture, but this the catechism here, our catechism just knocks out faith and repentance. So you can see them as linked yet distinguishable. That's important for us. Scripture always speaks of them. Now, there's many texts in Scripture where you'll hear uh, a Scripture just refer to faith. And there's scriptures where, where you'll hear uh, the scriptures refer to repentance and not always put together in the language of the New Testament. But as we take it in its, in its whole and we look at them all together, we see the connection. They're linked. Distinguishable, but linked. Both necessary, both universal, both linked, yet distinguishable. And uh, the catechism does a wonderful job with it. So you can see that. You can see the distinction between the two. Well, that's why they're put separately because they're two unique aspects of God's glorification and salvation, and we need to understand them. So repentance 
stems from the fear of God. That's where we need to kind of settle in and think about repentance. That's where it comes from, a fear of God. It's a keen understanding that God assesses, according to his holy character, all that we think and do. Now, that's where the natural man cannot access repentance. What does the natural man say? What does the churchgoer say? That's outside the sovereign uh, reality of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. What does the churchgoer say? Well, yeah, I'm good enough. I'm okay. God's not really going to judge me. God's not really, listen, listen, what, what's the modern language of our culture? God's not really that oppressive. What does the atheist say? What an oppressive God that would, that would meticulously judge my thoughts and assess them along with my actions. What a meticulous God. How oppressive. There's no fear of God there. But that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly what he tells us about himself. And he's exactly perfect and holy and just. And how he's created us and how he holds us accountable to himself. Leastwise, the grace of God extended to us in Jesus Christ would be minimized. Amen. He meticulously assesses every thought. And you need to know that. You know why you need to know that? One, because it's true. And two, because it's scary. It's supposed to be scary. You're sinful and you have no hope of being right with your God other than the mercies of God extended to you in Jesus Christ. And God is holy and he just doesn't play around with his creation. He knows your every thought. He assesses it according to his holy character. We're supposed to fear God. We're supposed to reverence God. That's what brings about repentance. Psalm 10, 4. What does the wicked say? What does the wicked say? The wicked in his haughtiness of his, of his conscience does not seek after God, does not seek after him. All his thoughts are, there's no That's the language of a, of a sinner who has no fear. So there must be a fear of God, a sobering, urgent understanding of the reality of judgment. Isn't that what we've removed from the Christian community in our culture? It's the judgment, right? We still love to talk about a lovey-dovey Jesus that is loving and kind and merciful and wants to be your friend and is there for you. And my goodness, actually, if you just if you just hang out with him enough, he'll probably get you millions. That's what you want. That's what he wants for you. No. He's the second person of the sovereign triune God who has taken on flesh, lived a perfect life, and died a substitutionary atoning death on the cross to pay the sin debt of all who repent and believe on him. He bore the wrath of God the Father, eternal wrath of God the Father, that he might set sinners free from God's righteous wrath, that they might know God rightly. 
there must be an understanding of judgment. Repentance stems from reality of judgment. That's part of who we are. That's part of our message. There is judgment looming. There is a judgment day. God, you will reckon with your God. You will meet your creator one day and you will give an account before him. Period. That is part of our message. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is part, if there is genuine salvation among us, that is part of what we have been birthed out of because at least there is fear. There is no repentance. Now that said, that's, that, so there's the background. Okay? That wasn't that lengthy, was it? Now, let's get to the foundation of repentance. I want to say this up front. I'm going to try to do my best uh, uh, by God's mercy to paint a picture here to give you an illustration and work off the illustration. The illustration is going to be that of a fruit tree. This illustration does not come from me. Uh, brothers far greater than I long ago have used this illustration. It first came to me through Sam Walden. So that was my first exposure of it, listening to Sam Walden. So I can directly tie mine back there. It certainly didn't originate with uh, Brother Walden and it certainly goes back uh, much further. But uh, nonetheless, it's a healthy illustration. I found it very beneficial and I want to try to apply it to this text today. That being an illustration of the tree of repentance being that of a fruit tree. Okay, repentance can be illustrated very well as we think about a fruit tree. Any fruit, your favorite fruit tree, doesn't matter. Just understand it's a fruit tree, okay? As you're conceptualizing, see a fruit tree. When you're looking here, you're going to look at a fruit tree. Fruit can be whatever fruit you want. Just see that there's a fruit tree, all right? That's what we're looking at. What does a tree have? This one has fruit, right? Cherries? Cherries is great. We all love cherries. I'm a cherry picker at times, so uh, that's good. Fruit, leaves, branches, trunk, and roots. Roots. There we go. Yes. Yes. We'll just include that on the branches and trunk. Okay. But very, very, I love detail. There you go. All right. Let's do the language here. Matthew 3 8. Therefore, bear fruit, keeping with repentance. That's a command. That's why, this, that's why the language is there. Bear fruit, keeping with repentance. Where does fruit stem from? Repentance. So fruit is good works, all right? When we talk about our fruit tree, the fruit that we see on our fruit tree, we are going to understand that as good works. The fruit of repentance is good works. Good works, service towards God and fellow man. Now you fill in the blanks from there. Your conscience take hold and bear weight there. But that's the general picture. Good works towards God and fellow man. That's the fruit of repentance. Acts 26, uh, 20. Now here, look at, look at Paul's ministry. Look at everything. And, and here's the language. They kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles. That's us. Even finally out to those Gentile dogs. We even brought this reality. What? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You see how that's connected right there? Where there's repentance, there's going to be deeds appropriate with repentance. That's fruit. 
That's what he's referring to there. That's fruit. Good works. Good works towards God and fellow man. So first sub point there I want you to know about good works um, being the fruit. Is that fruit is evidence of true repentance. So good works is evidence of true repentance. Now we have to have this in the right order. Okay? Good Works gives evidence of genuine repentance. That repentance is genuine. That the repentance is not a false repentance. That it's not a superficial repentance. That it's not an external religious act or an external act of morality merely performed by the power of a person's natural capacity. It's not that. Good works are evidence. And they go beyond the superficial capacity of our human nature. It's not just moral acts in our flesh. It's not just religious acts in our flesh. It is a supernatural reality that flows out of real repentance. That is exercised externally. Starts from the inside and is exercised externally to the glory of God. By the power of God. To the evidence of genuine repentance. The fruit of repentance must not be confused with the act of repentance. Okay? The fruit is what? What's the fruit? It's the evidence. It can't be the act, can it? Act has to transpire, in other words, in in order to have evidence, right? Fruit is the evidence. Can't be confused with the act. If we confuse it with the act, then what might happen? What might transpire? Self-righteousness could left back up a little bit and see something even more disastrous. Yes, a false conversion based on what? Good works. Well, I will do the evidence in order to receive repentance. If I do the good works, then that means I have repented. No. Good works does not produce repentance. Repentance produces good works. You see it? We must have these in order so that we cannot confuse the fruit, the evidence of repentance with the actual act of repentance itself. And it is an act. It's something you do. And we'll talk about that. So repentance is not doing good works in order to be saved. Good works are the fruit of repentance. The fruit comes from the close. I was after the old saying, the fruit comes from the root, right? Root produces the fruit. So the root is repentance itself. The fruit from the root is the good works. Okay? Fruit comes from the root. The tree of repentance does this. It bears fruit. And also, the tree of repentance has leaves, right? So we have fruit. We're going to have fruit. We have to have leaves. So we have leaves. Now, what are the leaves picture? The leaves picture the baptism of repentance. Luke 3, 3. And he came into all the districts around uh, the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. There you see it. There's a connection. So when we think about the leaves of the fruit tree, that can remind us of baptism. So repentance has a baptism connected to it. In our imagery, the leaves are a sign of life. When we think about trees, they have leaves on them. There's life there, right? Wilted up, withering away leaves, no life. No leaves, no life. 
So the leaves picture life. And spiritually speaking, the leaves indicate that a person has repented and has new life. And baptism is a picture of that reality. Now, yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that indwells a true believer who has genuinely repented. But also there's the symbol of that, the sign of that, that we do externally, where there is the actual water baptism that pictures this reality. So the baptism is the leaves. It pictures the reality of genuine repentance and new life. Where there is genuine repentance, there is life. And we picture that by baptism. The tree of the repentance has fruit, it has leaves, and it also has a trunk and branches. The trunk and branches represent the heart of the tree, the very essence, if you will, of the tree. And for us, in terms of imagery, the very essence of repentance. So what's the very essence of repentance? Metanoia. What is repentance at, at its core, at its essence? What is it? Well, Scripture, uh, when, we, when we hear the word metanoia, that just means a change of mind. And uh, as that translates, a change of mind into English, that could be a little dangerous because we could change our mind about anything. I could change my mind what, what place I want to eat after I leave here. I have a list. And, you know, and I have whims. And I have a large appetite. And right now, I have options. That may not be the case soon, but right now I have options. I could change my mind. I could change my mind on a dime. I could change my mind on a whim. I could change my mind just with the, the, the ebb and flow of my, of my emotions at the time. We as Americans have lots of options and we change our mind often. So when we hear this language, we need to back up and get a scriptural understanding of how this translates to us as a change of mind. Metanoia means a change of mind. But it's not a mental whim. It's not an outward action. It's not works. Uh, you know, I was going to eat uh, this scrumptious piece of zucchini bread. That's really when my, make, my wife makes it more like chocolate chip bread with a sliver of zucchini. But nonetheless, I was going to do that. But uh, then I changed my mind and decided I would run a couple of miles. And then I thought about it for a while. I changed my mind again and said, no, I'll eat two slices of zucchini bread and not run it off. That's a whim. It's not what the scripture means when we hear this term metanoia. It's not an outward action of works. It's not repentance. It's not, oh, I will pray seven times a day in the morning and five times a day at lunch and four more times a day before bedtime and I'll read four chapters of the Old Testament and three chapters of the New Testament each day of the week. And then I will achieve repentance. It's not repentance. That's not what it means. Repentance is a deep, deep, deeply internal matter of the heart. When the, when the, when the New Testament speaks of the mind, conceptually speaking for us, uh, in, in our context, in, in modern North America, we think of the mind um, we don't think of the very center of our being. We think of the heart as the very center of our being, right? So what it is for us, it's a very deep, 
deep, abiding matter of the very center of our being. For a New Testament context, rightly, I believe, the mind was the center of our being because that's where we make decisions, right? So for us, understand this way. It is a matter of the heart, the very center of your being. So it's a deep internal matter. It's an internal decision of the heart with lasting outward results. That's what it means. It means nothing less than that. When you hear metanoia, change the mind, it means all of that. It means a deep abiding inward change of the heart with lasting results. In other words, all your behavior is forever changed by changing your mind. So it's not just changing your mind. It's a change of everything. It's a transformation of your being that's expressed. It's internally transformed. And that transformation is so true and so final and so powerful and so encompassing that it changes who you are. It changes all that you do. It changes how you do everything in life. It changes everything externally about you. There's change. There's transformation and it sweeps across every aspect of your life. And it comes from way down inside who you are, at the core of your being, at the core of your creation, uniquely by a holy God. It starts right there and it never ends. It starts right there and it flows out until you're gone from this planet. That's what it is. That's what it means. Metanoia. That's what it means. Change your mind. Scripture. This is not a whim. It's everything of life. And it can't be conjured up in the human will. It's a supernatural change. It's a change that can only come from God. So again, just by definition, internal decision of the heart with lasting outward results. Now, that's not my language. I don't even know where I got that exactly, but that's what it is. I don't even know where to give credit there, but that's, that's what it is. For the Bible and Scripture, change in the mind equals the changing a person from the inside out. And that's, a, that's maybe a simple way to put it. So they're always equated. When you, when you hear the change of the mind, when you hear this language of repentance, it always means a changing of the person completely, holistically, from the inside out. Proverbs 23.7 has it just right. This is always true of mankind. For as he thinks within him, so he is. That's forever true. The natural state of man outside of salvation and the reality of salvation born out in the life of a transformed person by the power of God, the grace of God. Both are true. As he thinks in the depths of who he is, so he is. So this repentance is a radical change from the inside out. I mean radical Radical is at the very core in it. That's at the very root. From his very root, he is changed. And it affects everything about him or her. The tree of repentance grows from the roots. Repentance is a reality of growing out of deep from the depths of the roots of the transformed life. But that said, let's think about roots a little bit. Our tree has roots, right? We've talked about the fruit. We've talked about the leaves. We've talked about the trunk and the branches. The tree always has roots. And so really our repentance stems from the roots. And the roots are connected to the trunk and the branches. So all of who we are, the essence of who we are, 
as men and women who have repented, if that is true of us, the very essence of that is our life, our being, our transformation, the heart of our new life. Well, it stems from roots. We're going to talk about there are more roots than one to our tree. Our tree's big and it has lots of fruit on it, right? That's deep branches. I mean, uh, deep roots. But we're going to talk about two aspects of the roots. Okay, so we can maybe just think of them for conversation's sake. Two roots. Our tree has much more than two roots, and they're running deep. But we're going to think conceptually of two roots. Um, the tree of repentance has roots. The roots are connected to the trunk and the branches. And repentance grows from the roots. The roots are established in the soul. And we'll talk about the soul, the, 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 the depths of them here as one and two. Okay. So the roots are established in the soul, the very essence of who we are deep down in our heart. One root. Godly sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow for sin is a root of repentance. Where there is no godly sorrow for sin, there is no genuine repentance. Where there is genuine repentance, there must be godly sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow for sin stems from a fear of... There must be godly sorrow for sin. So there's a change in how the person thinks about sin. Right? And brother, brother Chris just, just uh, mentioned to us uh, a little earlier about conversations with, with an atheist and how there is no godly sorrow for sin. It doesn't exist. It didn't exist in that person's life when he's having the conversation. It wasn't there. So the way an atheist mm-hmm. thinks about sin is a way that has no godly sorrow. There's a new sorrow for sin. When there's godly sorrow, there's a new sorrow for sin, a more profound sorrow for sin. I mean, our children might have uh, sorrow for sin in 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 the sense of knowing what we tell them is right and wrong. According to the Bible, my young children, I tell them based upon the Bible what is right and wrong. They do things that are sinful and they know that's wrong because daddy's told them that's wrong according to God's word. And they're they're sorry for that sin. It's an external sorrow. And it lasts as long as they as it takes them to talk me out of getting out Dr. BB. But there's no godly sorrow. They're sorry that they got caught in their sin. You understand the difference? Mm-hmm. That's not godly sorrow. That's a worldly sorrow. And that leads to death. 2 Corinthians 7, 19-11. This is Paul. And he's talking to the, to the Corinthians there. And this is after he has rebuked them harshly. But he did so for their good. And now he has seen the fruit of that rebuke in 2 Corinthians. And so he's writing them back about the evidence of their godly sorrow for, over his rebuke. And what God has done with that and bringing it to bear in their lives. So listen to the language of Paul as he writes to the Corinthians about this reality. I now, this is Paul talking about himself, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. There it is. We're not happy about making people sorrowful. We don't want to manipulate people. But what we are, if that sorrow brings a sorrow of repentance, we're happy. You know, there's the old adage, the truth hurts. That's a real thing. 
But if it hurts to the sorrow of repentance, praise be to God. That's the way it goes. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. There's no, let me just stop here. There's no loss in anything that you do to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners. There's no loss there. There's no loss there. But when there is repentance and you see the evidence of God taking that gospel truth and laying that reality of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ upon that person, and you see the genuineness of that, there is no loss in the heartache that may have been brought about in your life or in their life. Now, is there loss in rejecting the gospel? Of course there is. There's no loss in the sovereignty of God. There's no loss in your being obedient. But where there is heartache and there is then genuine godly sorrow that leads to repentance, there is no loss. There's no loss. And Paul gives praise for that. There's a moment here where this is a reality in his ministry to the Corinthians. And he gives, he gives praise there. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the but the sorrow of the world produces death. Behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you! What vindication of yourselves! What indignation! What fear! What longing! What zeal! What avenging of wrong! And everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent. Now there it is. There's the godly sorrow that leads to the fruit of repentance. And there's the praise of Paul. God has brought this about. Did you see the language there? Their sorrow is according to the will of God. Godly sorrow is according to the will of God. Now, one root, godly sorrow for sin. Mark it down. One root of repentance. Another root of repentance is understanding our forgiveness of sin. So where there is a godly sorrow, there is also this joyous understanding that you can be forgiven. Have you ever have you ever had that conversation with that person? And they just they're they're just so close seemingly, but they get hung up right there. I just can't believe God couldn't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. Have you ever, ever had that conversation with them? They just tell you flat. You don't know what I've done. I've had that conversation. And that, it's anguishing. But we know a God who knows exactly what they've done. And holds His holy standard over them. But yet in mercy and grace extends hope and salvation in Christ to that person. Any sinner. There's no capacity for a sinner to go somewhere that God doesn't know. God knows exactly what they've done. And yet God, in the person of Christ, offers salvation to sinners like you and me. But part of that reality must be an understanding that you can be forgiven of sin. That's part of what it means to repent. There's no genuine repentance unless one believes that there is real forgiveness for him or her. 
That's always going to be there. There's going to be godly sorrow, and there's going to be this beautiful, glorious, supernatural reality. I can't believe it. That's a huge hang-up for so many people. But when there is this breakthrough, the truth of the gospel, there's always that reality. I can be forgiven, even me. And of course, we'll go the rest of our lives singing praises to God, saying, how can it be? How can it be that I could be forgiven? But you know, the mercies of God has been lavished upon you, and you know, I even I could be forgiven. That's exactly what transpires at the root of the tree of repentance, an understanding of forgiveness of sin, a deep abiding understanding that you can be forgiven for your sin, all of it. All of it. So there's this conviction and there's this being convinced in your mind that there is hope of forgiveness with God found through the person of Jesus Christ. It's there. You're convicted deeply of it, but you're convinced of it. It's true. It's true even of me. Psalm 130 verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you. This is David talking to his God. There's forgiveness with you. What? That you may be feared. There's the glory. There's the hope. There's the beauty of salvation. That a holy God may be feared, rightly reverenced by those who have been lavished by his grace in the person of Jesus Christ. An understanding that you can be forgiven of sin. So we have the tree of repentance. We have the fruit. We have the leaves. We have the branches in the trunk. We have the roots. What's present in the roots is godly sorrow and understand that you've been forgiven. The essence, the heart of the tree of repentance is that reality, that genuine reality of repentance. That true changing that comes from the inside deep within our hearts and is evidenced in everything we do and say. It's evidenced externally. There's leaves on the tree of repentance. They picture baptism. They picture life. There's now a new life in Christ for all who repent and believe on Him. And there's fruit. What is the fruit of repentance? Well, it's good works unto God and fellow man. And it's evident. It's always present. But finally, I want you to see that there's also a soil of repentance. So the roots are deeply embedded into good soil. I've been, uh, I must, I must confess my sin to you this morning. I've, I've been jealous. I've been envious of my brother Chris's garden. It's more fruitful than mine. Much more fruitful. And I won't go into details, but um, he gave me a little insight on the, the good soul. Um, it's had some healthy um, stirring. Good soul produces good treats, which produce good fruit. So those soul for the tree of repentance, it's in good soil. The tree of repentance will not grow in natural soul of fallen man. There's no possibility for the tree of repentance to grow in the natural soul, if you will, illustratively, in the soul of natural man. The tree of repentance cannot grow in natural man's heart. 
cannot, will not, cannot. Fallen man has no capacity to produce the kind of soil that will grow the tree of repentance. Tree of repentance cannot grow in sinful human hearts. False belief that God will not count, uh, will not hold me accountable is all that can grow in sinful human hearts. That's what you see across the board. Now it's manifested in many ways, but what you see in those who sit and hear the gospel truth inside the visible church is a heart of one who says, God will not hold me accountable. If there's one who sits inside the church, hears the gospel, and refuses to repent and believe, that's what you see. That's what's residing in that natural heart. No matter what they hear, to the contrary, that heart says, nope, God's not really going to hold me accountable. And what you hear outside the church is, you know what? I don't need to be in there and hear that gospel and hear about uh, uh, the God of creation and the hope of the unique God-man who has extended uh, uh, grace to us through his atoning death. I don't need to hear about that because if there were a God, he's not going to hold me accountable. That soul will never, ever produce the tree of repentance. Or in other words... To get the vernacular in our parts, that dog won't hunt. That ain't so. I'll explain it later. <laughs> I'm not picking on you. know I love it. We have problems in these parts, like everybody else. Okay, I digress. Repentance can only grow in a heart that has been fertilized and plowed up by the sovereign grace of God, period. That's it. There's no other way. No other way. No possibility of leading to the knowledge of truth unless the heart has been plowed up and fertilized by the sovereign grace of God. This is why we hear language in Scripture like we do in 2 Timothy 2.25. Listen to the language here. Now, again, this is Paul talking to Timothy about ministering to those there who, are he's, who he's shepherding. And so this is Paul's understudy. And now he's encouraging Timothy. And listen to how he encourages Timothy in the language here. He says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And here's the language. If perhaps God might grant them, might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. You hear that language? If perhaps. Perhaps this might happen. What? That God might grant them repentance. Now, what do we hear sometimes? Well, wait a minute. No, sometimes within the Christian context. Wait a minute. No, God grants repentance to everybody. And then it's up to them to lay hold of that repentance that's been granted by God and then repent themselves. So the repentance is there. It's just up to the person whether they take hold of it and repent or leave it alone. But God always grants it. But here, Paul tells Timothy very straightforwardly, if, perhaps. So when if, perhaps comes up in the sentence, that means there's a possibility of what? Not granting repentance. So it's not possible for one in a natural state to be able to be led, a heart to be able to be led to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ unless God grants repentance to that heart. Repentance only comes, a soul 
where repentance can grow is a supernatural working of God in the heart of fallen man, taking natural man and supernaturally injecting the gift of repentance. The soul of repentance must be transformed by the effectual, irresistible grace and calling of God. Repentance is a gift of a sovereign God. That's exactly what it is. Do you have something you must do? Well, yes, actually, we found out that we have two things. Today, we're only talking about one. But you must do them. They must take place in your life, really take place in your life in real space and time. You must really do them. And as you do them, know this. If you do them and they're genuine, it came to you as a gift. It's a gift of Almighty God interjecting that reality into your life. There's no other way. In and out of your natural state as a fallen man or woman, you cannot repent. You will not repent. This is a gift of God. Now, there's two calls to repentance here. When you're thinking about the soul of repentance and we're thinking about the gift of God, there's two calls of repentance. An outward call and an inward call. Okay? Two things are true concerning the call of repentance. There's an outward call and there's an inward call. Outward call. It comes to all who hear the gospel. All who hear the gospel have have an outward call to repentance. Matthew 22, 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now that's speaking of an outward call. That's speaking that many hear the gospel, but out of that many that hear the gospel, few are chosen. That's a, that's a clearest biblical uh, uh, picture of an outward call. That's a call, that's a command of the gospel to go, that goes forth to many. And those who hear the gospel have received an outward call to repent. Number two, the inward call. That is an effectual call of the gospel. All genuine followers of Jesus Christ have received this call. You see the difference? There's a distinction. There's an inward and outward call. So this is a sovereign, supernatural work of repentance on the soil of sinful man's heart. Romans 8.30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now you see the bookends there of this call that we find in Romans 30, or excuse me, Romans 8.30. By the way, this is the inward call, the effectual call, the irresistible call of God's grace. When one receives this call, one will repent and believe on Christ. So look at the bookends there of the call. Well, the, this call, this inward call, this effectual call, comes first by one being predestined by God. And it comes after by one being justified by God. So this call happens in the context of one who was predestined and justified. And in being predestined and justified, there's this reality of a call. You see that? That calls effectual. The one who has been predestined and justified, he's had, he or she has, has received a call that is an inward, effectual, irresistible call of repentance to which one will repent and put faith in Jesus Christ. And put faith in Jesus Christ. So there's the inward call. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24 speaks of the same concept. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block to Gentiles, foolishness. By the way, there's everybody, Jew and Gentile. The Jews, a stumbling block. The Gentiles, foolishness. <clears throat> but to those who are called, again, this is the effectual call, the inward call. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
That's an effectual call. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. That's the effectual call. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's an inward call. That's an effectual call. So repentance is a gift of God's grace. The soul of repentance is grace. The grace of the soul of repentance is a gift of God. Now the significance is this. The demands of the gospel. And there are demands. Right? The demands of the gospel cannot be diminished, lessened, weakened, watered down where there is genuine repentance. This is what we must hold on to here. We talked about this this morning. God is gracious and His working and sovereign in His work. And we talked about this morning in our morning Bible study. This is not emotionally appealing to our flesh. But we need to know something here and understand something in God's grace. Repentance is a gift. It's a sovereign work of God in the heart of fallen man. And if that sovereign work of God is not there, man in his natural state cannot conjure up genuine repentance. And it's a gift of God for a multiplicity of reasons to the glory of God. But here's some basic thoughts. Now, is this... Is this going to even begin to touch on the multiplicity of ways that God, that, that repentance being a sovereign gift of God is glorifying to God and good to his creation? No. But here's a baseline. Here's, here's a little nugget to begin us thinking and praying and praising and having the good conversations and encouraging one another. The demands of the gospel can never be lowered to the standard of natural man's in other words, you'll never conjure up genuine repentance and the frailty and weakness and sinfulness of the human heart left to our own to our own capacity. We can't. That's not going to happen. True repentance comes by God's grace. God must grant genuine repentance. God must transform the heart. And a transformed heart, that's the mark, right? It's the marker. That's the measure of genuine repentance. And that transformed heart cannot be accomplished by natural man. Cannot. A changed heart can only be accomplished by the grace of God. So here's the reality. You, I, we, anybody, nobody can change his or her heart. You can't change your own heart. You have no capacity to do it. However, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, glory to God. God can and does change the heart of fallen sinners by grace and bring them to Christ. Amen. God can and he does. Now, here's a basic application. Again, this is not all encompassing, but here's something that we can begin to hang our hat on here. What does this do for us? This understanding that the gospel demands are never lowered where there is genuine repentance. Okay? Can we say amen to that? The gospel demands are never lowered where there's genuine repentance. Where there's false conversion, oh, they're lowered. Aren't they? They're lowered. 
oh my goodness, you know, there's just there's just this this uh, rolling out of antinomianism. Oh my goodness, I've been covered by grace. I can just live however I want. Oh my goodness, God saved me so He could give me the world, so I could so I could uh, um, have all the riches of the world to indulge my flesh. The demands of the gospel will always be lowered where there is false repentance. Always. We have a far more gracious God because the reality is this. The demands of the gospel are never lowered where there's genuine repentance. That repentance is what? A repentance towards God, a fear of God, and a hatred of sin, and a longing into putting sin away, and a longing to live in obedience to God, to His glory and our good. That's a demand that's never lowered where there's genuine repentance. Now, beyond that, here's where it helps us. That's humbling. That's very humbling because we just didn't have anything to do with that. No matter how people want to, to lay it out, no matter how people want to try to, to, um, to construct the English language to turn these things and tie them in knots, the reality is this. Scripture's clear on this. When we come to genuine repentance... It's a work of God. Do we do something? Yes. But we do something that we could not do until God gave us the enabling grace to do so. And when we understand that, that takes away the arrogance. And if you see it any other way, at some point, no matter how much flowery, or flowered language that you, that you attach to it, at some point it gets down to you making a decision that's a little wiser than your neighbor. And there's many people that will bluster at that. But when it gets down to the bottom line, if it's you making this decision rather than God doing a supernatural work in your heart, then you have decided upon something because you're just a little bit wiser than your neighbor. And if that's the case, there's genuineness there in, in, in camps where that's, where that's preached. There's genuine salvation. I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. There's love for the Lord. There's obedience, but there's always this edgy reality. What's wrong with that sinner? What's wrong with that person? And, and, and the, the context is ripe for legalism. Well, if she would just get the hem of that skirt a little lower, she could get right with God. It's oppression and it's dangerous at least you think in this camp that you're free from it we're not but what the truth does is take us away from that kind of arrogance when you know that God has done the work and it's out of your control and you can't manipulate it in any way that's humbling that's what it is it's humbling and we should live accordingly it should humble you to the nth degree that God is the only one that can bring about genuine salvation in your life. It should humble you that you can't do it. You can't conjure it up. You can't be good enough. God must do it. And it helps us not to be arrogant towards fellow man. And it helps us to be thankful towards God. There's no place for pride when we understand the biblical truth of the gift of repentance, it removes the capacity of pride and it gives glory to God who spreads the feast before us. We don't wander in on our own. He spreads the feast before us. So here's the great question. 
Do you have the tree of repentance growing in your life? That is the most important question of all of life. That is the most important question I'll ever ask from this pulpit. Do you have the tree of repentance growing in your life? And know this, the answer is based on the knowledge of the word of God. Okay? That's where we find the answer. I spoke with a woman who was more of a, more of a uh, along the charismatic strand. Um, and she asked me, she said, uh, do you believe that um, God would condemn unborn babies? I said, well, I don't know. I said, you can take scripture and you could make a, you could make a case from implication. You could, you could take scripture and you could imply that no, he would not. And of course, my emotions would go there. But scripture is not definitive about that. So what I have to do is say, is, is give room to God to be sovereign. And what I can say to you is that the creator of heaven and earth will do right. She didn't like that. He says, well, I don't only believe that. I believe that, um, you know, there's, there's an age where young people, you know, they, they grow and, and there's an age where if they died as a young person, that, that God would save them. He says, you mean like an age of accountability? Well, yeah, something like that. I said, well, you believe that, uh, that mankind is born sinners. Well, I don't believe they're born sinners. So we talked about that and I gave her some very definitive scripture references. She said, yeah, I know scripture says that, but I just believe God is doing something more marvelous and more glorious and more kind and loving that we could ever imagine. I said, well, that's true. And she said, well, your young son, if he's, if he's not a Christian, and he's eyes, do you believe he'll go to hell? And I said, yes. Yes, I believe that. And she said, well, I just can't go with you there. I can't follow you. That's just too heinous for me. I said, well, it's too heinous for me too. But that's what scripture says. We're born sinners. Romans 5 is very clear. The psalmist tells us very clearly we're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. All must repent and believe on Christ. And repentance is a gift from God. So I asked her, you know, is scripture your, your, your base, your foundation? And she said, yes. Yes, it is. I said, well, what about the cross? Why the cross? She said, well, I, I, know, I, I know that's true. And I, and, and I realize that. And I, I see the... the, the, the the holes here, but I just believe God is doing something more marvelous than we could ever imagine. I believe that God is good and kind and loving and merciful and forgiving. And I said, do you believe that God is just and holy and righteous? He said, well, yeah, I know those things are true. I said, well, then the grace of God can't really be gracious and the apex of his glory unless he is absolutely just. And condemning all sinners. And we're all born sinners. So, not to belabor the conversation. But then she says to me, I said, so is scripture your standard? And she says, well, well yes, it is. But, <coughs> say it with me. But I just feel like God is doing something that in salvation that, that we just don't understand. It's more, more kind 
and gentle than we could ever imagine. I just feel like that. So let me say to you this morning, repentance is a gift from God, a sovereign gift of grace. And we don't need to feel a certain way about how God is uh, uh, working out his salvation among mankind. He has explicitly told us. And what that does for us is something far more glorious than the whims of our feeling. Dear brothers and sisters, we know that God saves lost sinners. We know for sure. I don't have to quibble with my whims and how I feel about what God is doing in salvation. He absolutely saves lost sinners. And he does it perfectly. And he does it according to his glory. And he does it as an apex of his grace extended to fallen sinners. So this is our great hope. God does save sinners. So when we look at our children that are outside the faith, we look at our children that we're not sure about. We look at our older children. We're not sure about where they are. We have great hope in telling them that God does save sinners. My goodness, we can just take ourselves and say, look at me. We can just remind ourselves and say, look, at, are you that haughty? That you've lost the reality to just look at yourself and say, my goodness. This is the most glorious thing I could ever utter out of my mouth. God does save sinners. I can speak to my lost boys with great joy and say, look, boys, God does save sinners. He saved me. He saved even the likes of me. He, can, he saves us. He can save you. Grace is extended to sinners. And God saves them. It's a guarantee. We know it. We don't have to question. I don't have to quibble with my feelings about it. He saves people. He's just that gracious. So hear the external call. And know what you are to do. Repent and believe on Christ. And you will be saved. That's the glorious hope. That's the glorious hope. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. This is bulky scripture. This is heavy theology. This is beyond the frailties of our human mind to, to fully render and, and sift through. We don't have the, the, the capacity or the length of days. But what grace. What amazing grace has been extended to us. I pray that you would take this reality of repentance that is a command of the gospel and that you will saturate our hearts with its truth, with its hope, with its joy, and that we'll go forth and we'll proclaim it with great joy and that it'll be to your glory and it'll be for our good and it'll be to the good of all around us that we have such good news. Help us to go forth and proclaim your glorious gospel and to speak reality to the two elements of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.